Welcome to Ordain and Establish, a podcast of lectures and discussions produced by the Project on Constitutional Originalism and the Catholic Intellectual Tradition at the Catholic University of America's Columbus School of Law. To learn more, visit our website at cit.catholic.edu. Well, welcome, everyone. I'm Kevin Walsh, the Knights of Columbus Professor of Law and the Catholic Tradition at the Catholic University of America's Columbus School of Law. I'm pleased to host a discussion today with Professor Stephen Smith, the Warren Distinguished Professor of Law and Co-Executive Director of the Institute for Law and Philosophy at the University of San Diego. And Professor Smith is the author of many articles uh, and books. I sometimes say, in fact, I said to my wife this morning that he writes them faster than I can read them. Uh, and uh, But I have read this book and, and many others, uh, but he's, he's always on the move. Um, today, we're here to discuss his book, The Disintegrating Conscience and the Decline of Modernity. This discussion is co-sponsored by two enterprises within CUA, namely the Institute for Human Ecology and the Project on Constitutional Originalism and the Catholic Intellectual Tradition, uh, so that we don't have that mouthful anymore. That would be IHE and CIT. Um, now, for our uh, on-campus events, we typically will open with a prayer, and um, we'll um, do that for this virtual um, event as well. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Lead us, Lord, in your path that we may enter into your truth. Gladden our hearts that we may fear your name. Amen. Okay. Well, uh, Professor Smith, the title of this book um, speaks to two topics, the disintegrating conscience on the one hand and decline of modernity. And you address these two topics through case studies of three individuals, Thomas More, James Madison, and William Brennan. Um, before we examine those case studies, I'm wondering if we might situate this within um, some of your other writings that, that we've talked about. The, the idea of decline is something you've addressed before, uh, perhaps uh, even a connoisseur of various kinds uh, of decline. I believe the first book I, uh, of, of yours that I read was The Rise and Decline of Religious Freedom. Um, but why the disintegrating consciousness, right? Uh, uh, conscience, right? The disintegrating conscience, I was thinking about the title and it seems it can have two meanings. Um, refer to conscience as something that is being disintegrated, right? The passive patient of disintegration. But the disintegrating conscience can also refer to conscience as an agent of disintegration. And on that latter view, the disintegration is of something else, like the polity or something. What will readers of the book find out from you about these two meanings of the disintegrating conscience? Yeah. Well, you know, so first of all, it's great to be with you, Kevin. You know, and yeah. I'm, uh, you know, it's a pleasure to be able to participate in this discussion. Um, and you're exactly right, and I'm uh, actually thrilled that you noticed that about the word disintegrating, because you know, a lot of times you put something in a writing or a book or something like that, and you don't don't know whether readers will really pick up on it and so forth. But that was definitely intended. You know, those two okay. meanings. You know, conscience as kind of an agent of disintegration. And conscience is something that in modern times is disintegrating, is itself disintegrating, I think. And both of those things I, are ideas that I try to try to discuss in the book. And they do tie in, as you said, to begin with, with the theme of decline. And I guess it is true that I write a lot and think quite a lot about decline. You know, I ran into some people at a conference not too long ago who said, oh, we've read several of your books. And I said, oh, great. I hope you enjoyed them. And they said, they're all depressing or something like that, you know, because decline does seem to be a theme. But, you know, I don't think I'm alone in this by any means. I think uh, there are lots of perceptions of decline today. I think surveys show that. 
and some important books, lots of important books, really, but just to mention really three that deal with this theme. So one is uh, a book that my book started off by mentioning, a book by Jacques Barzun, you know, one of the most eminent historians of the last century, called From Dawn to Decadence and Decline as, you know, the, um, the beginning and a central theme of that book. Uh, another more recent one that some people might know that also talks about Barzun, but is uh, Ross Douthat's book, uh, Decadence, that he published mm -hmm. a few years ago. That's more for a general audience, but still quite a, a very light book, I would say, you know, considering uh, those sorts of things. And then there's a book that uh, some some uh, people will know uh, that was really quite influential for me because I read it when I first started teaching about 40 years ago, Alistair McIntyre's book, After Virtue, and so on. You know. So these are all books, I think, that in one way or another deals with the sense of decline. And I'm afraid, you know, this isn't a happy theme, but there is sort of a widespread sense that, as Barzun said, our, our sort of modernity, the modern age and, and our culture is experiencing some kind of a decline. So that's something I think a lot of us think about trying to diagnose and understand our situation and so on. And in this book, I try to do that by seeing connections between conscience and some of the things that have happened that might constitute decline. Well, it, it, it seems that, how to put it, so on that second meaning of the disintegrating conscience, right, conscience itself being a source of disintegration, um, it seems that, that that kind of conscience is a different one than the one that we see in the beginning of the book. So the beginning of the book, is Thomas More is your, is your case study of, of Thomas More, and the concept of conscience um, that he was working with, and I, it, the the running, I guess subtitle or whatever it's called in the publishing uh, world, but the running title of the chapter is you kind of go through page by page is Lost World and New World, uh, and um, that part of what was lost in that Lost World that you talk about was. Thomas More's understanding of conscience, um, and that is not necessarily the one that we would have now. Um, what what was that um, notion of conscience, and kind of how is it different from the one that is most conventional now, where um, we might think of the conventional one now as like uh, private, personal judgment, kind of what I what I think. Uh, uh, yeah, I think it became that. Uh, the right of private judgment is often like, almost like a description of what people understand conscience or the freedom of conscience to mean. Um, so, yeah, so uh, a good question and a big question. So, first of all, the lost world, new world sort of idea. I think um, some historians, well, probably lots of historians would agree on this, and Thomas More himself definitely perceived that he was at a point where the world that he had known and that he valued and that had basically been the world in, let's say, Western Europe for the last thousand years, give or take, was in the process of being lost. Uh, and that was kind of the world of Christendom, you know, a, a world in which, uh, oh, I put it sometimes as the ties that bind, both that bind an individual's life together to make it sort of a unified whole, and that bind people together in a social order were consecrated. Uh, by Christianity and by the sacraments. And um, he saw that world beginning to unravel um, under the influence of Protestantism, as he perceived it. Um, and 
he he saw I think the emergence of a of a new order, and I think we'd say yeah, that was a time when sort of modernity, Barzun and others, you know, talk about modernity was beginning to emerge. It was a different kind of world, um, which religion doesn't go away, but religion has a different role, more of a, like a separate compartment of people's lives. And the ties that bind are not really consecrated anymore, you know, and the political order in particular and the social order are not really consecrated in the way that they were. So there was that transition. Now, conscience, I think, was a part of the transition at the time, and it was very important to just about everybody who was involved in that struggle. So, you know, conscience was very important to Moore, of course, and he wrote about it, and he talked about it, and he was executed because he said that as a matter of conscience, he couldn't take the oath uh, supporting, well, the king's uh, the dissolution of the king's marriage to, to Catherine and the marriage to Anne Boleyn. Moore wouldn't explain why he wouldn't take the oath except to say that it was a matter of conscience. Uh, and that's basically all he would say about it. But, um, but he wasn't the only one who was invoking conscience at this time because Henry VIII was saying he had to he had to end the marriage to Catherine because it was a matter of conscience to him. He well, that, I, 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 yeah, when, when I read that part, I said, "Oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense." And, and you'd say, "Well, uh, what was it that that um, Thomas More? Maybe not him, but someone said, well, all of a sudden you've discovered conscience.'" Um, <laughs> well, Catherine Henry, said that. I mean, Catherine, Henry, that's who it was, Henry, right? She, yeah, yeah. yeah. Said that yeah. his conscience was the thing that was dearest to his soul, and uh, his conscience now told him he needed to end the marriage to Catherine, and Catherine did comment that his conscience had taken a long, long time to, to awaken in this respect, and presumably under the uh, influence of Anne Boleyn, who might have <laughs> done something with uh, Henry's conscience, but still, Henry put it under the heading of conscience. And, and, um, and that seemed like maybe starting the emergence of this more private judgment, but even there, it ended up being a fight. What, you know, what Moore's conception of conscience that you draw out in this chapter, um, how would you describe that, right? Because in some ways, you know, we think of conscience now, in some ways it sets us apart. It's like, well, everyone else is doing this, but my conscience tells me that I have to do that. Yeah. Um, but but Moore's conception of conscience, how, how would you What's describe different? that? Well, I'd say that Moore's understanding of conscience had a couple of features. And these, by the way, I think are not really unique to him. I think he was operating with what had been the sort of, long-standing traditional let's say christian understanding of conscience but but i think it, that conception had a couple of features that distinguish it from more modern conceptions and one that distinguished it from what he perceived as the emerging the, uh, that would be more the protestant or martin luther conception of conscience so so one feature i think was that to him i think acting in accordance with conscience uh, sort of uh, encompassed two things doing the will of god as you understand it, and being true to yourself, that in Moore's conception were perfectly harmonious and almost like mutually entailing and so forth. Whereas I'd say the more modern conception of conscience saves the second of those, being true to yourself. You've got to be authentic. You've got to be true to yourself and what you think is right. And it doesn't necessarily include doing the will of God. It can for individuals who happen to think that that's you know, what their self you know, is inclined to do, but that's not really part of the modern conception of conscience, I think. The other feature that, for more, I think, though, was that conscience didn't mean so much private judgment, to refer back to the idea that you mentioned a moment ago. It referred more to doing what you believe has been 
the sort of consensus of Christianity, not even just in a particular council, like the Council of Constance, but over the ages, you know, what Christians have always and everywhere believed. Your conscience is supposed to be grounded in that. And that distinguished it, I think, from Martin Luther's view. Martin Luther also spoke, you know, eloquently and passionately, let's say, about conscience. But his was, you know, here I stand, I can do no other. The church may tell me I'm wrong, but I have to act on my own understanding of what is right. And to more, that was, I think, not what conscience meant. His was a more collective, you know, communal, you might say, uh, view of conscience, whereas Luther's was more individualistic. Luther, I think, would have agreed with more on the point about you've got to do what God, you know, what you believe God's will is. Um, in that respect, the two were the same. They were different, I think, in the communal versus more individualistic conception of conscience. And the modern view, I think, is more individualistic and not theistic in nature. So. Yeah, the, 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 one of the striking sentences, as you kind of explain this in the book, is you said for more, when he was talking about um, Protestants, sort of more generally, this, so this was um, not directly his um, differences with, with King Henry VIII, but um, he said that Protestants, in, in your description anyhow, were, were not merely acting against conscience themselves. They were working to make it impossible for Christians generally to act on conscience because in some ways uh, what the, the idea of conscience as acting in accord with the uniform opinion of Christendom sort of has a referent that doesn't exist anymore, Or right? Is that is – that... Yeah, and, I, and more, uh, more definitely – saw the Protestant movement as sort of destroying the unity of Christianity and Christendom. And I think that's uh, uh, that's sort of an important point, I think, in understanding one thing that has been troublesome ever since, I think, and that is, you know, how could Moore say so eloquently that every that he meddled with no man's conscience and no man should meddle with his? He insisted on that point. And yet you say, but how could he say that honestly? Because as Lord Chancellor, he had persecuted Protestants. He had caused a few of them to be executed. Um, under modern terminology, you might say he didn't seem to have shown much respect for the consciences of Protestants. And it is a troublesome question. But I think it helps in understanding that question to realize that from his point of view, Protestants were not really acting on conscience as he understood it. You know, the sort of private judgment thing that disregards the consensus of the church over the ages and so forth was not what he understood conscience to be. But then, in a sense, even more importantly, as you just said, he he clearly perceived the Protestants as making it difficult or impossible to act in accordance with conscience by destroying the uniformity of Christianity that was kind of prerequisite for being able to act on conscience. So I think, you know, now whether he acted properly or not is something people, you know, will always continue to debate and not, not agree about. But I think that means you can't so easily convict him of hypocrisy as might seem to be true if you don't appreciate his understanding of conscience. There's there's something that comes up about more, I guess, in each of the other chapters as well. I'm not I'm not sure if it's in every chapter, but I seem to recall it almost throughout the book. Um, you refer to how one feature of of Moore's behavior was he did not explain himself, um, but nor did he seek to explain to his family members um, why it was okay for them to take the oath, for them to act on a um, on a different understanding. So it's it's a peculiar thing where it it's it's so. 
central that he cannot transgress the, the command of conscience. Um, but it's not so central, or, or, or at least the way that it is central does not mean that he needs to insist on those that he loves acting in accord with the same understanding. Not with the same understanding, but I don't think he would have excused them in acting contrary to conscience. And this is Correct. one of the paradoxes right. of conscience, I think, that I think is both fascinating and important in foreseeing what's going to happen. So, yeah, he refused to take the oath. He was given many opportunities to take the oath. He was imprisoned in the Tower of London for about a year and a half and urged over and over again to take the oath. And he refused to do it because he said it was contrary to his conscience and it would lead to damnation, he said, if he were to take the oath. But his family took the oath and probably the person he loved most in the world was his daughter, Meg. And she pleads with him to take the oath. And he tells her, one, she tells him at one point, I've taken the oath. And he didn't really try to explain to his family, including Meg, what was wrong with it or why they shouldn't take it. So he said, well, why didn't he do that? And at one level, it's easy enough to understand. You know, he didn't want to give the evidence. If he explained to them, he would have been giving the evidence that the king's men were seeking so that they can convict him. So he didn't want to say it. And he might have even been persuasive and persuaded Meg not to take the oath, in which case, who knows? You know, she might have been convicted. And, and of course, no father wants that. For, but, but it's still puzzling because his judgment was for him, I think, it was better to die, uh, which is not something he wanted. He wasn't seeking death, but it was better to, to die than to take an oath that he thought would lead to damnation. So he asked, why didn't he have the same priority for his daughter, for other people that he loved? And I think uh, the most plausible answer is, insofar as she didn't know what was wrong with the oath, she didn't understand that, she could take it without incurring the same consequences that he would if he took it, because he did understand this. And it shows, in a sense, a way of conscience being used uh, as I put it, to consecrate error. You know, if you're doing something in good conscience, um, then even if you're wrong, your conscientious action, in a sense, consecrates the error. I think Moore was already beginning to, you know, he was perceiving that. And that's a possibility with conscience that I think becomes then really a major feature of conscience when you come to Madison and later, you know, the, the ability of conscience to consecrate error in a pluralist world, I think, for Madison, that becomes just an indispensable kind of feature or function of conscience. Well, that 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 so so that takes us in some ways to the running title of the second chapter because the the first chapter running title is Lost World, New World. Um, the second chapter, the one on Madison, is disestablishment, which I think we all understand what that is referring to, both the Virginia experience uh, as well as then, the, of course, the Establishment Clause of the U.S. Constitution. So disestablishment's a familiar concept, but it's disestablishment and the new establishment. Uh, and the new establishment has something to do with this function of conscience that you're talking about. Um, but uh, maybe you can sketch that out a little bit of uh, this is sort of paradoxical in terms of what is meant by an establishment, yeah. because what does it mean to establish what the religion of conscience or or um, maybe you could just say a little bit about what what you're drawing out in that chapter on new establishment? 
Yeah. So I guess I think that's an important question leading to something that, in my view, most modern scholars kind of miss uh, about Madison and about Madison, and what he did, and also, you know, what Madison and Jefferson together and the, and the founders did. So here are a couple of things that would be sort of common in modern histories of Madison, biographies and so forth. So one point would be that Madison was very reticent about talking about his religion, so it's difficult to know for sure what his religion was. That you know, leading biographers say that. I actually think that's a mistake, you know. And a second, um, a second point would be that Madison, along with Jefferson, were very instrumental, probably the leading figures in disestablishing religion. Up to that point, people had believed that to have a unified political community, you had to have a common religion. But uh, and it had to be legally established in a sense, you know, supported. But a common view is that Madison and Jefferson persuaded the founders and so the founding generation that that wasn't true, that a religion should be disestablished, and they were, they were therefore the sort of the source of secular government. People like Jack Rakoff and Martha Nussbaum, but you know, almost all scholars see, you know, they they sort of instituted secular government. I think both those points are wrong. Uh, so if I go back to the first point. Yeah. Um, I think, and this is a little, you know, this is an interpretation, um, but I think if you look at all the things Madison says and so forth, what emerges is that he did, he was very clear throughout his life that his religion was the gospel of conscience, you know, that um, you might say that for someone like Thomas More, conscience was a corollary of Christianity. I think for Madison, conscience was the essence of our duty to God, that we need to act in accordance with our duty, uh, what we believe about our duty to God. And if we do that, then yeah, again, that's the core of religion. And I said, you know, we're doing the right thing, even if we happen to be wrong. You can put this kind of paradoxically and say, Madison believed that you should do what you believe God wants you to do, and that God wants you to do what you believe God wants you to do, even if God doesn't approve of the thing that you believe God wants you to do. But I think that's sort of Madison's understanding of conscience. And about that, he was not reticent at all. He was very, you know, so I think you might say uh, he embraced the gospel of conscience. And it's easy, in a way, I think, to understand why a thoughtful person like Madison would have come to that sort of conclusion, because he was living in a time where there had already emerged quite a lot of religious diversity. Um, among Protestant sects, there were a lot of competition. Today, we might look at those and say, oh, well, those were just little variations on theme. But that was certainly not true for the Baptists who were being thrown into jail, you know, for, for preaching without a license, or for the Anglicans who were throwing them into jail and so forth. But Madison had uh, close ties to the Anglican, later the Episcopal Church. You know, he was raised in that church. His father was a vestryman. His mother was an ardent supporter. His wife was. Um, he had close ties to Baptists. He, uh, they helped him really get elected to Congress in the, in the first Congress and supported him. He had obviously close ties to more the sort of more rationalist Enlightenment religion of people like Jefferson and so forth. And um, and it's easy, I think, to understand how a thoughtful person might say, I can't be sure that one of these groups is right and the other one is wrong. But if they're all acting in accordance with conscience, that's what God wants them to do. That's the more important thing than getting the theology exactly right. So, so if you say in the first point, Madison was actually quite explicit about his religion. It was the gospel of conscience. Then if you come to the second point and say, did he disestablish religion? 
And in a sense, the answer would be no. He definitely did work for the disestablishment of any institutional church, I think. But he actually worked for the legal establishment of his religion, you know, the religion of conscience. You know, they did that first in Virginia. He tried to do it, you know, with the Bill of Rights, his particular provision for conscience ended up not being adopted, and he regretted that. But he definitely worked for the legal establishment of the gospel of conscience. And again, I think you can see how that would have been such a natural and appealing thing, and even, in a sense, almost a stroke of genius. You say, how are we going to unite this country with all the religious diversity? And the answer would be, if we legally establish conscience, that has the ability to consecrate all of these different faiths, they might be wrong at some level. They might all think the others are wrong, but conscience has this ability to unify them in the sense that it consecrates them insofar as people are doing what they believe God wants them to do. And I think that's basically what Madison's fundamental achievement was. Well, that sounds like you're making an argument of a, a two wrongs. You combine them together and you get a right, which is um, the one the one thing that's wrong is we don't know much about Madison's religious belief. Um, and the second being um, that he had actually established a secular republic. And you say, well, if by secular we mean one thing that is not. Uh, that, that somehow uh, temporal, dissociated from the eternal, dissociated from God, well, perhaps, but if this concept is broad enough to encompass conscience, whether or not that is driven um, by duty to a creator, right, then it's like, okay, that that's what Madison did. I did want to ask you, though, about um, sort of when you say that that in some ways he established this religion of conscience, um, you you don't mean that in the sense of the establishment clause. That's not an interpretation of the First Amendment's establishment clause, but more like the things that he did, um, the positions that he took. I mean, particularly in Virginia, um, and um, and then sort of what we might call the uses of James Madison uh, and some of um, his things for for later theorists and for other actors and stuff like that. And the reason I want to see if that to be clear is because I think when it comes to Bill Brennan, you're going to make stronger claims about um, what he personally did to the law itself. And so, can you kind of disentangle the sort of Madison, the uses of Madison versus what he actually did to the law itself. Yeah, I'll try to say something about that. So I actually, I think that is accurate to say that at least in the state of Virginia, he did legally establish conscience. You know, he insisted, this was one of his first, the first things right. that he did um, as a 24 year old representative, you know, to the convention that was setting up a new constitution for the state of Virginia in 1776, you know, senior was, uh, he, he didn't start the idea, it was already there, there was already a provision in George Mason's draft for conscience, but Madison insisted on tinkering with it in a way that I think uh, legally established conscience, freedom of conscience. So um, it's true, that's not setting up an institutional religion. And in fact, he wasn't in favor of that, you know, a, a, let's say a, a church, an institutional religion. But I think it really should be appreciated that he thought the force of law should be behind this gospel of conscience, should be affirming it, protecting it, and so forth. Um, but the other point I'd make of, uh, in response to what you were asking just now is that I think for Madison, conscience still did have a theistic quality. It doesn't have the more modern, I'll just do whatever you believe, I think. You know, he always talks about conscience as, you know, uh, acting in accordance with what you believe your duty to God is. 
if you take God out of it, I'm not sure that Madison's view, you know, can really stand any longer. So in that sense, I think he, you know, that was sort of a similarity that he had to Thomas More and Martin Luther. I think, you know, that it's still a theistic view. I think, you know, and that's to some degree probably becomes unacceptable to a lot of people later. And so, but at that time, I think that was the view. Um, and, and that's right there, right? When he says religion is the duty we owe to our creator. And yeah. when he's talking about the limited jurisdiction of the state to um, mm -hmm. essentially be part of, be part of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that, as I say, that sort of drops out later in the 20th century, that part of it drops out. Uh, but I think for him, that was still real and still essential, really, to, uh, you know, to his conception and to it being able to perform the function that he wanted it to perform, uh, you know, in, in you know, providing some kind of a religious unity, even in the midst of religious pluralism. I think you have to have that theistic element, I think, or it doesn't really work in the same way. And um, there is a point where, so I take your point on the um, Virginia experience and the Virginia Constitution, but uh, for our current law, right, there's a story that's told about how the Virginia experience essentially made its way into the Establishment Clause, right, into the First Amendment yeah. and the Bill of Rights, which, of course, uh, he's proposing these in Congress, um, but you're not, you're, you're not arguing um, that the Establishment Clause Somehow incorporated uh, incorporated the Virginia statute. experience, right? Even on Madison's own view, I I, I and I I take that. I, I see, mean, I'm yeah. trying to represent yeah, no, the I book. I agree with you on that. I agree with you on that. I think uh, you know, and I've written other places quite a little a lot about that. I, I I don't think the First Amendment did, you know, basically track the, the Virginia statute for religious freedom. But I think on the point of conscience. Madison wanted to do that at the national level. You know, he wanted to have a national uh, a provision in the Bill of Rights that would have protected the right of conscience against the states. And he proposed it; it passed in the House, I believe, but it was uh, it didn't pass in the Senate and so forth. So he tried to legally establish conscience, even at the national level. I think and, and failed to do that. Well, I, I want to make sure that we get to Justice Brandon. I just had one one follow up question on on Madison, uh, because in in part of the book where you essentially take apart his argument and the way that it's been um, used, um, you, you say, well, he also he overlooks actually um, some uses for compulsion in religion, right? So so um, most of his argument is about. This is not the sort of thing that can be compelled. Just the nature mm -hmm. of religion um, as a duty we owe to our creator is not something that that that's capable of being compelled and that then can have um, some bad effects if, if you try. Um, but you do sketch out what you call the pedagogical um, uh, function and um, of compulsion in matters of religion or certain types of compulsion, as well as a contagion. Um, right. rationale. And these are related, but I, I think it does make sense analytically the way you distinguish these. Can you just kind of, as it, since that's part of your criticism of Madison's position, just sketch out when people said, what what, what, what do you mean by a pedagogical function of compulsion and, and what like uh, avoiding contagion as a rationale for compulsion? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I, I will say, in that chapter on Madison, I intended to have a sort of dialectical quality where you know, fair enough. I'm not saying, you know, Professor yeah. Smith endorses um, right. uh, 
but, but um, recognize. But then it'll come back and fair. say, "Oh, actually, you know, the criticism I made earlier. Now we can see maybe isn't quite cogent and so forth. So, so it's a back and forth. But, but I do mean there to respond to what I think is a really common view, and even somebody that I, you know, let's say greatly respect, and you know, you know, very erudite scholar like uh, John Noonan, you know, who writes about uh, Madison and so forth. But there's a real common view that they take, which is Madison's. Um, Madison and Jefferson and other people said this too, but I mean, they're, they're for us important figures who said this. Once you understand that only a voluntary faith and a sincere voluntary faith is acceptable to God, it just follows automatically that there could be no use for compulsion in matters of religion, you know, and therefore that religious freedom should follow. And uh, and then it seems to it seems that it seems to imply that all those people over the years, like Saint Augustine and Thomas Aquinas and Thomas More were just somehow, you know, blind or something. They they didn't. Uh, There's a sort of an obvious point that today just about any middle school uh, student ought to be able to easily comprehend. And yet somehow Augustine and Aquinas and Thomas More missed it or something like that. And I just think that's a gross distortion of you know both of history and of Madison. So I think you know there are rationales that had been embraced over the years for. Uh, coercion in matters of religion and two of those that were quite common uh, were one was a pedagogical rationale which is you know if you require people to let's say practice and learn a religion up to a point even though they're not inclined to do so initially they will eventually come to see the truth of it and that's a rationale that we use all the time in other matters we don't use it in religion but i think we force kids to go to school we force them to recite certain things before uh, on the assumption that they'll come to see the the truth of it um that that was one sort of common let's say classical rationale for religious coercion um and another was a contagion rationale you know the heretics basically uh are going to spread their their wrong and uh, perverse ideas to innocent people who otherwise might not have been a fit. And so that's a reason to stop them from doing that. Now, I'd say, I certainly don't think that those rationales provide us with a good justification for religious coercion today under our circumstances and so forth. But in terms of Madison providing some sort of, let's say, argument for the ages that, you know, shows this, he really doesn't address those sorts of issues at all. And I think if someone like uh, Thomas More, and he was a had read Madison's point, he'd just say, you're not telling me anything I don't know already. I, everything you say is, is, is obvious, and I know all that, and you haven't addressed any of my my real concerns. Now, in the end, I tried to absolve Madison of, you know, that I just say, well, you know, he wasn't trying to write a treatise for the ages. He was trying to write something that under the circumstances in Virginia at the time uh, would lead to the result that he thought was the right one, and he did a brilliant job of that. But if we try to elevate him into, you know, somebody who's made this, you know, classic monumental contribution to the overall, you know, centuries long debate and relegate Aquinas more and others to having been somehow just blindly missed this point. I just really think we're not doing justice to anybody in, in that sort of uh, sort of discussion. And, and two, uh, at least in some of the debates that he was trying to win, I mean, for example, the one on on the religious assessments where uh, it was compulsion in the sense that we were talking about attacks, uh, but they could direct it to different ways, not to everybody, um, but maybe he's overstating 
or kind of giving a very broad uh, understanding of what is meant by compulsion uh, as well. And, and, you know, we can add to the, to the list of people whose views maybe are not represented there. People like John Marshall, who was in the, uh, gen, uh, who was, who was in Virginia politics at the time, or Patrick Henry, of course, leading mm-hmm. um, the charge. And so um, that's helpful. So let's um, now move to um, Justice Brennan. And uh, this one, I think, uh, is where the concept of conscience is most familiar in some respects. Um, but you have some pretty strong claims about the way that Justice Brennan personally and through his uh, influence on the court and through the court's influence in society um, shifted uh, the meaning of, of, of the United States of America in certain ways. I just want to start, though, with the title. Um, and um, the title is Conscience and Compartmentalization, where uh, you, you, this compartmentalization, and you end up breaking this down and sort of private compartmentalization, and then this leads to societal compartmentalization. But uh, I just want to add, as a, as a reader, this was a um, a frightening chapter, uh, just, uh, just just in, in thinking oh. about um, less even about society than, than in thinking about um, even myself as a lawyer, a law professor, um, all, all sorts of things, because I, I think that compartmentalizing is something that we do. Uh, and uh, and and seeing the way that it played out um, for for Brennan um, was was frightening in some ways, and and so I guess I want to yeah. I want to say like you know what wh- why is that or is it not a a fair reading of the chapter to to kind of worry about one's own um, compartmentalization and conscience. If, you know, so the people reading this book are generally going to be, uh, educated, um, if not legally educated, well then, you know, God bless for, for all that, but it's a little frightening, isn't it? Well, yeah, it is. I mean, now you're making me feel like I should (laughs) feel pretty disturbed myself. Well, let's start with Brennan though. Okay. So, um, so when Brennan's nominated to the Supreme Court, basically an objection, one objection is that as a Catholic, you know, he would have a conflict of interest in a sense and a conflict of loyalty in that, uh, uh, you know, the criticism would be he'd be bound to do what the Pope says and so forth. And this is a criticism that lots of Catholics in particular, but probably others in different forms have faced. You know, Al Smith had faced it when he ran for president years before. John Kennedy faced it a few years later. Um and uh, those three all tried to respond to that um, objection by compartmentalizing, by saying, um, well, I, I can continue to be a Catholic as a private citizen, but as a public official, as a justice, or for Kennedy as president, you know, I won't be directed by my religious beliefs and so forth. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll do my public job and however you do it. And so I'll sort of split myself into the public self, you know, the public official, and that won't be guided by my religious beliefs, but as a private citizen, I will be. And so that's a kind of compartmentalization that Brennan had adopted for himself. And he explained this to the Senate and he explained it in others where that that was his philosophy. For, for being a justice. And then I suggest that as a justice, he worked, he was probably the leading figure in working to impose that same compartmentalization on the nation as a whole by reading it into 
uh, the First Amendment religion clauses and so on, um, which I think was an imposition on the clause, not not what they initially meant and so forth. But and by now it's become so axiomatic that um, we do largely take it for granted, and there are probably hosts of politicians, well, Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi and so forth, you know, who uh, claim and for all I know sincerely claim to be uh, faithful Catholics, and yet uh, in their public uh, positions take positions that are directly contrary to, you know, Catholic teachings on matters like abortion and so forth. And this is just kind of common. We sort of take it for granted. But I do suggest that personally, it involves a kind of disintegration. You know, if you're going to split yourself into your religious side, that actually, and that's where your ultimate beliefs supposedly are, you know, but you're going to confine that to the private sphere and operate almost like an actor on a different script when you're in your public role, that that's a kind of disintegration. It wasn't hard for Brennan to do it, and it wasn't hard for John Kennedy to do it, probably, because they weren't, I, I'm not denigrating their faithfulness or sincerity, but indications are they never took really seriously, you know, Catholic theology and training and so forth. It, it came kind of natural to them. It would not have been natural to Thomas More. You know, Th Thomas More resigned from office you know, rather than do something like that and suffered execution. And it wouldn't be natural to others, I think, who are more earnest, let's say, and studious and committed to their faith. It does involve a kind of disintegration. I think. Um, and when it's imposed on the nation, I suggest it also involves a sort of a disintegration um, between, let's say, past America and modern America, and also between, let's say, we the people as the full people with religious beliefs and so forth, and we, the people performing public offices, in which case we're supposed to sort of bracket our religious beliefs and so on. Uh, so that that's the kind of phenomenon discussed there. Is it avoidable though? I mean, your question, is it terrifying? You know, do we all end up doing that? And is it kind of disintegrating to all of us? I don't know. I'm not in a really, I'm not sure from our perspective, since we're so used to it and, and this kind of thing, whether we can get a very clear sight on it. I sort of end that chapter by, um, Getting back to Thomas More, and of the three figures, he's the one that's supposed to be kind of like the overarching figure. But I bring him back in the form of uh, a Walker Percy novel, uh, in which the the protagonist is Doctor Thomas More, you know, a descendant of Thomas More, and uh, this is Love in the Ruins, uh, you know, kind of in some ways on the level of belief, a faithful Catholic on the level of conduct, a serial adulterer, and, and so forth. But but it's a wonderful novel, I think. And the whole novel is about disintegration, I think, you know, and Percy, through the novel and elsewhere and things he says, did sort of think the modern self is just disintegrated. We come apart in the middle. We flip. Um, but in the novel, uh, Percy, uh, you know, has Thomas More perceiving that a lot of his colleagues don't see the problem that, that they feel like they, they're healthy enough and so forth. You know, they don't see, you know, the, the sort of catastrophe in a way, you know, that is looming the way Dr. Thomas More sees it. And I have to admit, I sort of wonder sometimes whether we and I are like Thomas More's colleagues who are so accustomed to this sort of situation that we don't really see some of the disintegration that in fact is happening. But I do think it's complicated because I'm not sure, depending on your situation, that it has to be disintegrating in this way, I think it kind of depends on the life and your career and what, you know, the situations you're in and so forth. It can lead any of us maybe into that sort of situation, but I think it might be 
possible to avoid that kind of compromise or that that kind of compartmentalization. I hope so, at least. I think I, I've sort of tried to do it in my in my life, and I think we try to do that, but maybe we're fooling ourselves, or maybe I'm fooling myself. Thinking it, it, I think that's one of the things that that stands out in that chapter is on the one hand, um, you make the case sort of analytically that if you compartmentalize in this way, um, here's what happens to your understanding of yourself as a person. That is um, when you're making arguments in the most public um, way and you're taking positions and you do all the, all those other things. And then there's this other aspect that really is just, just for you or just for your family or something. You say, well, who are you really? Uh, it, 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 are, are, you, are you the same person? And you talk about di different aspects of personal identity and um, and maybe there there's some kind of uh, maybe there can be too much self-knowledge, right, that, that it's not helpful to to be brought up to that. And this came out in the in the Brennan chapter. I don't know that I had appreciated this previously. Um, you're talking about the influence of his father. Uh, so his oh, father, yeah. his father dies um, when he is in his second year at Harvard Law School um, and and. There was a lot that was happening um, with his father, but his father wanted he wanted him to go to Penn uh, to Penn for undergrad, um, to be um, to go to Harvard Law School. But while all this is happening, he secretly marries. Um, uh, he secretly marries, and so in law school, as a law student, um, he in some ways is living a double life, at, like vis-a-vis -vis his father, vis-a-vis -vis his yeah. other family. And you mentioned that. That um, uh, at the end, uh, the secret comes out. They were gonna. They were actually just gonna have a marriage and pretend it was their first for everybody. But somehow the priest, um, the priest who did the first one, accidentally uh, produced the marriage certificate. The, from the old first marriage one. certificate. <laughs> and, yeah. And, and um, I, I wonder if 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 you could just say a little bit about the, the this um, personal side um, uh, of of Brennan and the influence of his father, um, and and how that may have um, shaped his his role as a justice, because you, you say part of what um, may have made Brennan effective was his personal sense of who he was. He knew, um, even if he wasn't a very uh, regular um, practicing Catholic in, in some ways, he, he, he kind of, he had his family, he had his religion, he was Bill Brennan from New Jersey, and um, he knew who he was, and that enabled him to build coalitions to do all this other stuff. Um, I, I yeah. just wonder if you could speak to that a little. Um, so that comes up in the chapter where I've tried to say that the mod by separating, by disintegrating conscience, by separating um, the sort of duty to God from being true to yourself, there's been a kind of disintegration, and it's occurring at a time when it becomes less and less clear what the self even is or what constitutes itself. And I think you see lots of evidence of people struggling with that today you know trying to who am i you know how do i even know what kind of you know and um you see it i think in uh people who are uh, trying to uh, discover who their parents were who their ancestors were you see it in um you see it in i think the rising levels of depression and suicide that also said uh, you see it i think in identity politics you know people trying to find some secure sense of self um, and I try to link this to, you know, the disintegration that has come with modern notions of conscience. Um, but Brennan, but the typical sources, I think, of a sense of self, this is kind of a modern problem, you know, some authors say, because people typically had a strong sense of their self. They didn't worry about existentially, who am I? Because their self was sort of given to them by their family ties, 
and by their religion. You know, I am uh, the son of, you know, Robert and Betty, you know, and so forth. And I am a, a, a child of God, you know, and one of God's creatures. And that kind of gives me a sense of myself. Um, those things have kind of dried up to a significant degree for a lot of people, I think, which helps to explain the sort of crisis of the self. Brennan, on the other hand, I think didn't have that problem. You know, as you see, he still, I, you know, I see no reason to doubt that he was sincere in his faith, even if he wasn't particularly, you know, earnest about practicing in every way. But, uh, you know, he, he presumably was sort of sincere in it. And he did come from, let's say, a strong family, in fact, <laughs> with a very strong father, as you said, you know, who kind of dominated the family. And, um, and Brennan, you know, as you say, it's, you know, in some ways, it's interesting that he escaped that for purposes of getting married without letting his father know because he thought his father would, wouldn't approve. But to a large degree, he followed his father. You know, he went to college where his father told him to do. He went to law school where his father said. And when someone asked him many, many years later, you know, um, would your father have been surprised to see you now as a Supreme Court justice? He said, no, he would have expected it. You know, so so, so Brennan was well grounded in the uh, I say that the traditional forms of identity, the basis of, of identity. And he was also known for being a sort of a warm, you know, a very likable, personable person with a, with a kind of self-confidence about him, a warm self-confidence about it. So he, I think himself did not suffer from this crisis of the self. And uh, I suggested that maybe that because he still had this grounding in the traditional sources of self, although changes that he was actually helping to bring about may have been contributing to the crisis of the self, you know, for many people and for the nation general. Well, I, I do want to um, try to get to some of the questions that have come in on our, um, uh, it was on the webinar, you know, secret chat messages and, and things right. like that to make sure. And um, so I'm going to, I'm going to put two and I'll tell you why the, the first one, I'm not sure whether you want to take or not, um, because uh, it addresses a super important uh, figure for conscience um, who is in between Madison and Brennan temporally, and this is Cardinal Newman, um, Cardinal Newman's understanding of conscience, and um, that just doesn't doesn't feature in the book, and so I'm not sure um, if, if maybe I, I think even a, instead of asking the question, I will make a promise that IHE together with CIT will ensure um, plenty of good Newman um, related things. Now, if, if there is something you wanted to add about, about Newman and conscience, um, this is an invitation, I suppose. Um, uh, I'll just say it, really it, briefly, no, I probably won't add anything there. I, I know Newman did, uh, you know, write and think a lot about conscience. And actually, when I was working on, on a draft of this, and a friend of mine who read a draft said, you know, you should probably work Cardinal Newman in. And so I, uh, uh, but the book was already pretty long. So, I mean, I looked up, read a little of Cardinal Newman on it. And uh, it was good stuff for sure. Like, you know, a lot of what Newman wrote, but I just didn't see a way exactly to integrate it into the sort of flow of the argument here. So, so I did, but it'd definitely be worth, you know, paying more attention to that. It's definitely interesting with, uh, I think, even in some of his writings on Christological controversies, the emphasis on the census fidelium, right? The sense of the faithful and that the lay faithful in particular in the Arian heresy, uh, kind of having a better sense of what the faith was um, mm -hmm. in some ways than some of the hierarchs. But uh, we'll have to uh, move, move that um, for um, another another event. Uh, on a question about um, 
we've talked a lot about changing understandings of, of conscience. Um, how is this related to changing understandings of religion? So I mentioned uh, Madison's de description in the classical sense, in some ways, of the duty we owe to our creator. And of course, this, um, in a broad sense, we might think of uh, Aquinas's understanding of religion as a, a sort of part, in some ways, of justice, of, 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 of what is owed. Um, but now religion is understood um, as a sort of system and beliefs related to the transcendent that I don't know, it's not necessarily within the virtue of justice, say. Um, it, are, there, are, are there connections that you see in these sort of drifting meanings or, um, or, or is, is it just too complicated? Yeah, uh, well, well, it is very complicated, obviously. And as you probably know, you know, some scholars today kind of wonder whether uh, it's even possible to define religion. You know, maybe this is just sort of a, a, a misconceived category and so forth. And other scholars might say, you know, it's something that a category that got developed in more like modern Western history for political reasons and so forth. Uh, uh, you know, I talk about it in different senses in different places, you know, as sort of a relation to the holy and so forth. But I think there is definitely just, let's say, just within American law, a connection between conscience and religion. For someone like Brennan, for example, he'd talk about freedom of religion or freedom of conscience interchangeably. You know, as if, as if those were the same things, and um, and I think what happened with conscience is sort of what happened with the interpretation of the religion clauses. The, probably the clearest cases to illustrate that would be Welsh and Seeger, the draft uh, exemption cases from the Vietnam War period. You know, where uh, religious objectors to the war were entitled to some kind of an objection. Uh, well, to war generally. I mean, there were qualifications, but you know, there was an exemption for religious objectors. And it got read to mean something like, uh, I mean, it was originally defined theistically, kind of hearkening back to the way Madison talked about it. But it got defined to mean sort of any existentially sincere thing. So religion got kind of exploded, I'd say, in those decisions in the same way that conscience has. Right. And, and I mean, in some ways, it was it Welsh where where the uh, the case where the guy's like, I'm not going to let you off that easy. I'm going to insist that it's it's not religious. Right. Like it's just, yeah. you know, whatever it is, it's not religious. Um, yeah. He said it, it was is, not uh, religious. Uh, but the court and, and said like, well, that because you don't understand how to read a federal statute. <laughs> right. um, and, yeah. You know. So, I mean, and I don't I, I kind of liked those cases when they were decided and I still sort of like them, I guess, in a way. But I do think they sort of reflect a kind of incoherence that's creeping into the, you know, the whole notion of religion. Causes. Well, I, I do think it, I'm glad you did not end the book um, with the conscience and compartmentalization chapter. Um, and I just want to just read the end of that chapter so uh, in part, and then um, ask you to to kind of speak to the epilogue, the looking backward, looking forward um, as we as we sort of wrap up. And um, it, at the end of the uh, the book before the epilogue, um, you talk about conscience and you say that ennobling, but also disintegrating faculty that has served to uplift, dignify, and even consecrate humanity. But it also sunders a man from his society and family, Sir Thomas More, from the tradition and church that shaped him, Luther, from the commitment to theological truth, Madison. And finally, in its modern version, it sunders a man, Brennan, Kennedy, Dr. Thomas More, Joe Biden, and so, so many others from himself or his from himself, separating the public persona or performer 
from what ostensibly are, or at least were, his deepest and constitutive convictions, and thereby leaving him ignorant of who he is, what he believes, or what he is doing. If that was the final word in the book, <laughs> uh, um, th that that would have been be would have been rough. Um, what is the final word? I mean, the the the, the final word um, you end up referring to, um, uh, well, the future and to future generations. Um, and uh, I think perhaps the sort of therapy of looking at all this change over time does open up the um, the possibility for imagining a future that isn't. Um, just a continuation of the worst aspects of the present. Um, mm -hmm. But um, in the looking backward, looking forward, um, where do you leave readers with the with your epilogue? Yeah, so I don't, but by the way, the passage that you just read was kind of a distillation, uh, also a reflection of the Walker Percy novel in a sense. I think, you know, that's what he's kind of leading up to. But I suppose I, saying it that way, I was kind of, endorsing it i suppose you know well th this is a this is a challenge for your readers with the dialectical style right i yeah. took percy um to be standing in in some ways for this author but yeah. um but you can speak to well, that better so um this is kind of a long-standing commitment of mine going back to when i taught at the university of colorado and i had some colleagues there and we sort of had a commitment in which we said legal scholarship always ends with a prescription and this is what our solution this is what we should do and we were committed to not doing that you know that uh it was if we could give a diagnosis of our situation that was already a contribution why would we be the ones who would know what the solution is and i sort of feel like i i feel like we are um uh, uh well one of the historians talking about more says he was at a fulcrum period in human history things were changing I feel like we are at a fulcrum point in human history now, and in a point like that, it's very difficult to anticipate, you know, what will come. So I try to end on a potentially hopeful note, but I don't say anything very concrete. When I, you know, when I have to, when I'm forced to say things, oh, so, okay, but if you had to say, you know, where should we go? Uh, again, I sort of insist we don't know where we're going. I, here's Newman again. One step enough. Lead kindly, like you know. One step enough. I can't. I do not ask to see the distant scene. So, we're, but if I have to be more concrete, um, I try to say something like, for me, the most hopeful thing here would be appreciating the importance of freedom of the church, because I think you know the church is something that has led through previous fulcrum periods, and by that I mean. Broadly, I'll say, you know, the faithful of the Christian community, not, you know, some, not necessarily the Roman Catholic Church or the Anglican Church, but, but the church in a broad sense. I, much as the church, I think today, all the churches, many of them at least, are struggling with serious challenges and things may not look good. I still think that's where, you know, the hope for the future lies. So I sort of go, go that direction. Now, someone else, you can, you can easily see someone responding to your question by um, moving in the direction of something that apparently is gaining some, you know, considerable momentum in some quarters, going under the name of integralism and so forth. Um, I don't go that way myself, but I do think it's an indication uh, of the sort of disintegration that's being experienced and the need for, you know, some way of, uh, you know, of having a more meaningful sort of system of life that's connected to transcendence and is integrated in that way. I, I think there are different ways of trying to 
explore that. And I, I associate them with the church in one form or another, I think. So that's the, about the best I can do, I think. Well, thank you for, for that. It, it's, it reminds me a little bit of the, uh, the last self-help book that, that um, Percy wrote, Lost in the Cosmos, right? Mm -hmm. and, and at least it is a cosmos um, or, 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 um, or even a sense of us as, as being, we might be lost, but we're in a universe, a one, um, one we're, we're in the same world. Um, we, we, uh, the, the last question that came in, which I won't have a chance to get to, uh, refers to uh, Pope John Paul II encyclical Veritatis Splendor uh, 30 years ago, um, and, and uh, of course, the splendor of truth. And um, yeah. that is something that comes through um, in a book um, like this uh, that helps us understand this changing concept over time. I will ask um, everyone who's with us virtually um, to join me uh, in thanking you, but I instead, since they're virtual, I will thank you. Um, thank you for this conversation and for letting us um, listen in and, and, and to, um, to speak with you um, as an author. Thank you, Kevin. It's really been, it's really been good to have a chance to talk with you. Well, that that's that's a wrap uh, of. And of I'll go with the Veritatis Splendor too. Probably won't <laughs> find a better, uh, you know, a better and actually hopeful and meaningful diagnosis of our situation than that. I suppose you know, that'd be a good place to turn. Very good, very good. Well, um, thank you all for for um, attending virtually and for listening um, down the road. Um, if you're um, well, if it's not too late for whenever you're listening to this, the next IHE event is a virtual event on February 13th. That is uh, part of the St. Scholastica series, Two Notions of Leisure, Resting in the Lord versus Restless Consumption. Um, and then the next CIT event is later that week. That's an in-person one, February 15th at 1230. And uh, that, uh, maybe to go back to uh, part of what we were discussing today, Professor Daniel Dreisbach of American and Professor Gerard Bradley of University of Notre Dame will be speaking on the topic, Reading the Bible with the Founding Fathers. So for now, goodbye, Godspeed, and may okay. God bless America. Okay, Thank you for listening to Ordain and Establish, a podcast of lectures and discussions produced by the Project on Constitutional Originalism and the Catholic Intellectual Tradition at the Catholic University of America's Columbus School of Law. To learn more, visit our website at cit.catholic.edu.